You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Thanks, James. Um, it is a pleasure uh, to come to Carlisle and, uh, and to share the Word of God. You have a reputation for loving God's Word. And so it's always a pleasure to be able to uh, open it, open it with you. And and as James said, uh, you know, being able to serve uh, Sojourn Carlisle uh, for the past couple of years has also been a joy for me as well. Um, uh, as you heard the, the scripture read, we're continuing our series in Matthew. We've been working through Matthew for the last couple of years, and so we're in chapter twenty-six. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open there this morning. Um, it's also an honor to be able to come and preach in this season. And uh, this season, uh, I'm sure most of you are feeling the same thing that my family is feeling, is that uh, the last year has been exhausting. Um, uh, we, have, we have dubbed it in our household the, the season of disappointment, uh, as, as there have been so many things that, um, that have caused disappointment, whether it's our kids not being able to go to school, uh, people getting sick, um, the the loss of of friends and, and loved ones, or even just the loss of connection, you know, with family. We haven't seen some of our our grandparents. But my kids haven't seen their grandparents in over a year, at least not been in the same room with them. Um, and and there's so many things going on right now for us and and for our church um, with with you know issues of masks. You know, I was thinking the, I was thinking this morning as I drove in, I was like, you know, the beauty of the mask is that uh, we can all smell our breath for the first time. And you can, you, you can receive that metaphorically or, or, or uh, practically, however you need to hear it this morning. But um, there's just been so many challenges, and I think the, the word today, the, the, the text that we're dealing with today, is going to speak to that a little bit, or at least it has for me this week, as I've prepared, and so I'm hoping that it will do the same for you. Um, it's a lot of text. I mean, we're talking 29 verses, uh, and what's been happening as we've been going in Matthew is we've seen a focusing, uh, a, a focusing from kind of a broad view of what's going on, and and, and things being a little fuzzy. Some, you know, Jesus teaches in parables at times, and he says, "Hey, you know, some people aren't going to understand what I'm saying. You know, it's kind of fuzzy. Those that can hear will be able to hear it." But now, as we get closer and closer to the death of Jesus on the cross, things become more and more in focus. They become less and less vague and more crystal clear. And that's starting to happen uh, in this text in chapter 26. Uh, we saw in the, even in the first statement, uh, as Jesus says, you know, um, uh, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. There's no vagueness in that statement, Right? It's starting to become very clear what's going on, and, um, and, and what we're seeing is, is this focus in on, uh, on the crucifixion of Christ. Um, actually, in this text, in the, in the 29 verse of this text, Jesus will predict his death four times. He predicts it, as I just stated, in verse 2. In verse 12, as he's uh, responding to the disciples. He says, by pouring this perfume on my body, she is preparing me for burial. That's the second time he predicts his death. And verse 18, he says, the teacher says, my time is near. 
right? That's another, not, maybe not as clear, but it's another prediction of his death. And then in verse 29, he says, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new in my father's kingdom. He will not drink wine again on this side of life. So in this text, there's four times he makes it very clear that he knows what's happening. He's fully aware that he's entering into his final days with his disciples, with his friends, and on earth. And so my question as I approached this text was, what was he trying to teach his disciples, and by teaching them, teaching us, in these final days, these final hours that he has with his disciples. And I saw three lessons emerge. And there's a lot going on in this text, so you can dig in deeper. My hope is that this would inspire you to do so, but we're going to look at it from a pretty um, broad perspective because there's so much going on here. And those three lessons, one is that God is in control. We're going to see that Jesus makes it very clear that he is in control. He knows what's happening and he's in control. The second lesson will be um, to keep our first love our first love. And then the last lesson is going to be about the necessity of Jesus' death. So as we go through this, those are the three lessons. The first lesson being God is in control. And if you look at the opening verse, the opening couple verses actually, um, they're kind of ominous, right? Like this doesn't doesn't start out um, very hopeful. Jesus tells them that he's going to be crucified. And then we have the chief priests and the elders of the people gathering together to plot the murder of Jesus. Like this is not encouraging as, as, we, as, as we open up this section if you're on team Jesus. I mean, it looks like things are starting to unravel. Something clearly is wrong. Before we had, you know, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were upset. They were trying to trick Jesus into saying something that they could hold against him. But at this point, like, they're not even trying to do that anymore. They're openly plotting his murder. And if you're living in this time, if you're one of the disciples, you have to be distressed at this moment that it does seem like things are starting to unravel. You can imagine the anxiety that's beginning to build in them. And, and what you'll see is two threads emerge. You're going to see the thread that Jesus is saying, you know, as we just showed, four verses where he's saying, I know what's going to happen. This has to happen. This is part of the plan of God. But we're also going to see another thread, which is the, the plotting of the, uh, of the chief priest and the elders. Then you're going to see Judas kind of give in to that and, and, and start to plot with them. And then you're going to see the confrontation of Judas with, with Jesus. And if you look at that, there's, a, there, there's two things happening. You see the, the plan of God, um, Jesus walking through the plan of God, and then you see this, this plan of the enemy. Uh, the assault of the enemy that, that is trying to um, discredit and kill Jesus. Both of those threads are happening through this text and in this time. And if you're, and if you're on Team Satan, it looks pretty good, right? It's like being a Detroit Lions fan going into the fourth quarter. It's like we got the lead. There's no way we could lose this game. There's only one guy here that knows the Detroit Lions that well, so... Pastor James knows, like, that's not a sure bet. But it feels that way if you're, if, you're on the, if, you're, if you're one of the disciples, if you're following Jesus, it does not look, like if you're just looking at what's happening in the world around them, and, and we have the luxury of, of history, we know what's going to happen, but they did not, right? And so they're in this moment where it just feels like everything is stacking up against them, that, that people are plotting against them, and it looks like Jesus is headed to his death. And I think... 
What's, what's hard for the disciples at this moment, I think it's hard for us at times to realize, is that, is that both plans, the plan of God and the plan of Satan, require the death of Jesus. Right? They both think that's a win. Like, like Satan is hoping for Jesus to be crucified. He does not realize that's also the plan of God. And so in, the, in that context, when Jesus has just, just hours left of freedom with his disciples and with his friends, I believe that's why he's making it clear that he knows what's going on. He knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that he's going to die. And he wants them to be reassured, just like we did this morning with our assurance, to, that, that he is going to make it okay. He is going to hold us together. He is going to um, bring victory out of what appears to be a tragedy. Because if we're in that, if we're in that time, or even now at times, as, as our world feels like it's crumbling and things are, are not going the way that we had hoped, it's so easy to give up hope. And Jesus is giving us hope in this moment of saying, I'm in control. It will be Okay, he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he makes it clear in in verse 24. He says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. That God is not surprised. Satan is not going to thwart the plan of God. This has been written and foretold in Scripture. His confidence in the Scripture of God that says, Everything's going to be okay because this is the plan of God. And that's the invitation for us this morning in that first lesson is to trust. And and that word can be so hard these days because there are so many reasons that people have broken our trust. But God does not break our trust. God is good and faithful. His word is true. And if he's in control, we can trust his plan. We can trust that, that our life is going to, to, even if it's hard, it's still going to glorify God. And we don't have to be reactive. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to try to fix it in, in our own power, in our own way, in our own strength. And that tends to be, like, that, that's my instinct. When, when things start to feel like they're crumbling, I, I, tend to, I, I tend to get frenetic, right? I try to, try to solve the problem. I try to have the conversations. I try to, uh, I make calls. I, I meet with people. I try to fix it. And what's nice is that when, when we can rest in the trust that God's plan is, is, is going to happen, he's going to be faithful to that plan, is that we can, we can relax a bit. We can trust that what he's doing uh, is going to be for our good. That's the, that's the promise of Scripture. See, Judas is the ultimate reactor, right? What happens with Judas is when he, he gets fed up with the fact that they're wasting this perfume. He gets fed up with the fact that, that it looks like the team that he bet on is going to lose, and he reacts, and he's like, if my team's going to lose, I'm going to switch teams. And he's going he's gonna to flip teams, he's going to react, and, and whenever we react out of fear, in the midst of chaos, when fears are driving force, we tend to react in ways that cannot be good, that cannot lead to life, and that's what Judas does. And sometimes, you know, we ask this question, well, isn't Judas just a bad guy? Wasn't he just, wasn't he just really evil and, and this was the intent all along? Well, we're going to see in chapter 27, he, he, Matthew says that he had remorse. 
And he goes back and he, and he, he regrets his decision. And what happens here is that it seems like Judas is reacting to, out of fear that he is bet on the wrong man. And he's going to make some decisions that are going to cause severe consequences for him. It doesn't do anything to thwart the plan of God, but it does cause great um, um, destruction in his own life. And so our encouragement is like, if we can trust we can trust what God is doing, even in this season, even with everything that's going on in our world. If we can trust God, then, then maybe we can remain confident and unreactive in, in this time and be able to bless others and, and not, not make decisions out of fear and reaction that are going to cause strife to ourselves and others. And what we end up seeing is, is, is Jesus in the midst of... I mean, imagine this. Imagine if you knew this week you were going to die. Not because you're going to have a car accident or you're going to get sick, but because people were plotting your murder. I mean, what would you do with your last 48 hours? Call the police, get all your friends around, bar up your doors, hide in your room. What does Jesus do? What do you see in the text? He goes to eat with his friends. He goes to eat at Bethany. He has a meal at Bethany with his friends, and he has a meal with his disciples. If there's one thing that I can relate with Jesus is that when I'm stressed, I eat. The difference probably being is that mine, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to simulate control when I do that. <laughs> you know, I can control what I put in my mouth. I'm usually doing it out of a place of stress. Where, where Jesus, Jesus is doing it out of reflection of his trust for the Father, that, that knowing that the plan of God is moving forward, that he can be present and spend time with his friends and with his disciples. And that brings us to the second lesson. So the first lesson is God is in control, so trust him. The second lesson is to stay connected to your first love, to enjoy the presence of God, even in the midst of chaos, whatever you're going through right now, whatever challenges you're facing, your, family's uh, your family is facing, to, to be able to stay present with your first love, which is Jesus. If we look at verses 6 through 13, um, this story of the anointing at Bethany. Remember the context of this story is that he's going to be crucified in a few days. And with everything going around, with precious little time left in his ministry, he spends time with friends. He has dinner with Simon, Simon the leper, right? So we don't know uh, specifically who Simon is, but he's known as Simon the leper. So um, they're having dinner with him. The, the the assumption here is that he was a leper that was cured by Jesus, but he still carries the stigma of being a leper, of having a skin disease, because that's what they still call him. And he spends time having dinner with him. And during that dinner, a woman who John reveals in his, in his gospel is Mary Magdalene, she pours this expensive perfume over Jesus, which draws a rebuke from the disciples. And there are they're apparently upset by the waste of the money that, that, that could have been spent on the poor. Um, John, who's just maybe a little less sensitive about, about naming names, says that it was actually Judas who was upset, um, probably because he was stealing. He would have, been, he would have stolen money from, from what they would have sold that for. And, and he's kind of the ringleader of the disciples being indignant and, and, and upset about, uh, about the waste. But it also makes sense that there would be some anxiety within the disciples, right? 
Like they'd given up their, their livelihoods, they'd quit their jobs to follow Jesus, and it looks like everything's crumbling at this moment. And so, and so in, in that, I, I mean, I have some sympathy for them that, that they're, in, with everything and all this chaos going on, that they, would be, that they would be frustrated and easily follow Judas into that indignation. So when we're consumed with fear, when we're worried about what's going on, when we're, when we're, when we're on Facebook or Instagram and reading all the stories and all the, the conspiracy theories that, that, that are going to ruin our lives or going to cause us um, to die or grow a third year or whatever it is they're telling us this week, it's really hard to be present with God when you're, when you're consumed by fear, when you're driven by fear. It's hard to be present and enjoy the presence of Jesus in those moments. And so it makes it, makes it I mean, really easy um, to, to let anxiety be the driver. But aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor, but you do not always have me. You don't always have your first love, he's saying. By pouring this perfume on my body, she's preparing me for for burial, truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her, which we do this morning. She, she, in the midst of all this chaos, is the one who makes the right choice, right? It reminds us of Mary and Martha. She's the one that chooses the better thing, which is presence with God, presence with Jesus in that moment. It reminded me of the book of Revelation as Jesus, Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus and he says, I know your works and your labors and your endurance that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. And I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name. And you have not grown weary. Wouldn't we all love to hear that about our church? Wouldn't we love to hear that about Sojourn Carlisle, that we defended the truth, that we endured through hardship? But he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. He's saying, even if we love the word of God, even if we, even if we take care of the poor, that we have to remain in love with Jesus. And the disciples, in the midst of all this chaos, they're going to, well, we could be, they, they go to the, to the, these are the things that we could do as a church with this, you know, with, like with this perfume and with this money. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter <laughs> If you do those things and you don't love me, if you can't be present with me. And so it's a beautiful opportunity to, to, to see what, what trust in the, in the work of God and the plan of God can lead to a place of presence with Jesus, even when things are crazy, even when the world seems like it's spinning out, that we have, we have something that the world does not have, which is a God who cares, a God who sympathizes, a God who is with us. The disciples are so disoriented, they fail to realize that they only have a few more moments with Jesus. By the grace of God, that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, we have access to him forever. And woe to us if we fail to just recognize and even take the time to be present with him. The, the gift that we, we leave unopened when we get so driven by anxiety and fear. That's the invitation for us from the second lesson is to enjoy the presence of God. That when we find stability through trusting God, 
We can enjoy him regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's going on in your life this morning. See, the reality is that that trusting the plan of God does not change the fact that Jesus will die. Yet he eats. He has dinner with his friends. And your circumstances may not change this morning or this week, but you're still invited to enjoy his presence in your life day by day, moment by moment. This brings us to the final lesson that I think Jesus is using in these final moments, which is the necessity of his death. See, the section here culminates with what we know as the Last Supper. I like the positive take in the uh, CSB. It's the first Lord's Supper, (laughs) same as the Last Supper. See, Jesus is taking the Passover meal with his disciples And he takes this time to teach them about his death, to prepare them for his death. If we think about that first lesson, that he is in control, that God is in control, that this is not in any way thwarting the plan of God, that his crucifixion is part of what God always intended, you have to ask the question, why why do you have to die? We know this is the question that the disciples had, right? Like, like Peter gets rebuked for, for saying that Jesus doesn't have to die. We, we, where, where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because, because Peter is suggesting that there's another way without Jesus dying. We'll see in the next chapter where, where, where Peter will defend Jesus with a sword to try to save his life. He still doesn't get it, right? He still doesn't get that Jesus has to die. That's part of the plan. But as we look at this meal, we see two things take place. Um, first, Jesus continues to reinforce that he's fully aware of what's going to take place by, by bringing out um, that someone, one of them, is going to betray him. Right? He, he says, one of you, uh, 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 in verse 21, he says, while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing for him to say at the beginning of this meal. Certainly it highlights that he is in control, that he's not a victim. You're going to be betray me, but I know that you're going to be betray me, and I'm going to let you betray me. I'm not a victim here. You're not winning a victory. Um, one of you will betray me. So he reinforces this idea that he is in control. But it also highlights this idea that spending time with Jesus um, someone who had spent time for years with Jesus was still capable of treachery. Imagine being one of those disciples at that moment. Why did it cause them so much distress? You know, there are times when, uh, when cookies in my house go, go missing, right? And my wife suggests that someone took the cookies. If I didn't eat them, I'm not distressed, As you look at me, you're going, you probably ate the cookies. But if I'm not guilty, I feel no, like I don't feel shame or guilt for something I didn't do. But but this, this concept of someone betraying Jesus among the disciples, it creates anxiety within them. They're distressed by this idea. 
Maybe they're distressed by the idea that someone would betray them. But is it also possible that they themselves carry doubt? That they've had doubts and they've wondered, it sure looks like the chief priests and the the Pharisees are about to win this game. It sure looks like this ministry is coming to an end. Do you think maybe they had doubts in themselves? That they had wondered if Jesus really was the Messiah? Would Would he really conquer Satan's sin and death? Did they even understand what the crucifixion would do for the history of mankind? I think, I think the reason that they're anxious is because they have their own doubts. Even, their response isn't even different than Judas, who we know is the one who betrays Jesus and has already done so. Yet they all respond in the same way. And I think there's a reason that God does this, that Jesus does this with them, is that he is setting up for them the importance of his death. That whether, whether they betray Jesus like Judas will do, and Judas has already acted upon that betrayal, or whether they are just in themselves uh, sinful, rebellious humans, They are all in need of the salvation of Jesus, just like you and just like me. That none of us are in a category different than Judas. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of the blood of Jesus to cover us. And I think he's highlighting this in this moment, pointing to this to to help them feel and understand that they are also just like the one who betrays Jesus. They're all in need of salvation. And that's what he does next, is he explains that need. He says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take it and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which I pour out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We are reminded this morning of the cost of sin. Scripture says that the wage of sin, what sin costs, what we pay for sin is death. That when we rebel against the living God, the creator of the universe, there is a judgment that comes with our sin. And that judgment is that death is required to pay for that sin. To be made, with, to be made right with God, that is what is required. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he says that his blood is going to be poured out. See, we, we know that 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 there was a system of sacrifice, right, where, where, where an atoning sacrifice would be made, that, that an animal would be brought and killed, and, and that would atone for the sins for a time, but it was never, ever good enough. There is no sacrifice that could ever be made that would be good enough because our rebellion as the, as the, as the pinnacle of creation, as, as, as the, uh, the, the beings created in the image of God, when we rebel against God, the wage, the, the, the wage is death. And in order for us to be made with God, an equal sacrifice would need to be made, a perfect man, a perfect 
a perfect man would have to be sacrificed, and that's what Jesus does. God, man. That his blood being poured out is the only sacrifice that would make us right with God. And that's what he's, he's pointing to and he's letting them know this is what is going to happen, that his sinless life is going to be substituted for ours. He's going to lay down his perfect life in our place. He's going to die the death that we should have died because of our sin, but he's going to die in our place. In doing so, in, in, in not only dying, but, but raising again, conquering Satan's sin and death through his, his resurrection and his ascension, he's going to make it possible for us to be made right with God. Forgiveness, that the, the, the shame and the, and, the, and the fear is taken away. That we now can, can stand in the presence of God with, the, with the, the perfection of Jesus on us. That we have been made right. It makes it possible for us to receive eternal life. And that's the, if, the, if the third lesson is the necessity of Jesus' death, the invitation is to receive that as a gift. And when we receive that gift, every week when we take communion, it, it brings attention. One is the sorrow that comes with the cost. I think we need to be reminded of that sorrow at times, that, that what it cost for us to be redeemed was the death of God. Was Jesus coming in the flesh as God-man, dying in our place? That was the cost. But there's also celebration. That, that the victory that was achieved on the cross has made us right with God and that he was pleased to do it. And so, so we come to communion every week carrying both the tension of, of, of sorrow and celebration. And to be honest, that's the Christian life. I've never found a season in my life where it was all celebration. There's always a tension of the challenges going on in the world, the loss that's happening in our world or even in our very particular lives and the celebration of God's invitation to life with him. That's the Christian life. It's a tension. It's okay to celebrate even though the world is, is a mess. It's okay to be sorrowful even when others are celebrating and things are going well. It's okay to carry those together. And, I'd, and, and I would say if you're looking for the Christian life to be only one or the other, you're, you're missing the point <laughs> that the Christian life is about carrying both of these intentions. There will be a day when every tear is wiped away. When Jesus returns, there will be a day where the sorrow will end. And we look forward to that day. Even as we take communion, we look forward to that day when we will have dinner with the Father, with Jesus, and we'll no longer have a world that's broken and in chaos. But until then, we commune together, we gather together, we hear the word of God, we take communion as we, as we look forward to that day. Carrying those things in tension. So this morning, as we come to a close, like we do every week, we're going to take communion together. Whether you're with us here in person or whether you're watching from home, we're going to take communion. And I have a communion cup here. As we take communion, we do just as they did. This tradition that we've been doing for, for over 2,000 years, what we do every week, they, the disciples did with Jesus 
in his last few days with us. Jesus had them take bread and break it. For us, we will remove the plastic lid (laughs) because that's the season we're in. If you're like me, sometimes I have trouble getting those open. But he said, take the bread and eat it. This is my body. It's a representation of his body that was broken in our place. And then he passed the cup to them. And he said, drink it giving thanks. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of your sins this morning. There's something beautiful about the fact that we continue a tradition that started over 2,000 years ago, remembering what Christ did, remembering that He is in control so we can trust Him. That control leading us uh, to, the, to the presence of God, let, letting God remain, Jesus remain our first love. So, so we trust, we enjoy, and we receive. That's the invitation this morning. Let me pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.